Quiet nights and quiet stars Quiet chords from my guitar Floating on the silence that surrounds us Quiet thoughts Only, quiet if only it were, the way that Tony Bennett makes it seem. Because really, you know... There's not a lot of quiet time or quiet nights for quiet thoughts. Uh, today we're going to talk about sound. Um, we're going to talk to David Owen, one of my favorite writers uh, of all time. Uh, in the first segment, he's got a new book about hearing, basically, called Volume Control, Hearing in a Deafening World. We're also going to talk to these uh, two creators of a, uh, a podcast. These are all like two, three, four-minute podcasts uh, that are just sort of experiments with sound. And we're also going to talk at the end to somebody who's part of the rising nostalgia for telephone conversations. Uh, but to get ready for the show today, I put on that podcast. It's called The World, World According to Sound. Uh, and it, it features sounds like ants walking over contact mics uh, and tones extracted from waterfalls and sand dunes. And I popped in some one more in-ear headphones, and I took the dog for a walk. And immediately I encountered a lawn crew across the street, which included a ride-on mower so big you could mount a machine gun on it and use it in desert combat. And then down the street there was a pool crew, and the dog barked at the pool crew. And after that there was more landscaping that included weed whacking and one of those leaf blowers that, looked, that looks like a backpack. And I realized I'm just not in control of my sound environment. And that's sort of, and here I am trying to listen to this kind of pristine sound recording podcast. But that's the way things are. So yes, David Owen is with us. Um, uh, I would read every single thing that David Owen writes, except that he's really interested in golf, unfortunately. So, but I, so I would read almost everything that David Owen writes because I just love the way that he writes. I love the way he's written this book, Volume Control, Hearing in a Deafening World. David Owen, welcome back to our show. Hey, Colin. So I learned so much reading this book. And one of the things, uh, one of the things I like about David Owen books is that sooner or later, you're you realize you're reading about yourself, particularly because Dave, you and I, David, are basically the same age. Right. So, for example, I, I I have been to an audiologist. I've had my hearing tested, and they didn't really find anything too wrong. But I do this thing at, at sort of parties, cocktail parties, uh, things like that, or, or any kind of loud, sort of crowded environment where there's a lot of background noise. I cup my hand to one of my ears, and I was mentioning to one of my friends who's of a similar age that I do that. And he said, oh, I wasn't sure whether you were aware that you do that. <laughs> so, and I said, no, I'm aware that I do it and I need to do it. I didn't quite understand why I needed to do it until I read your book. And this might be just as an example of, I mean, there's just so much here. We're not going to be able to cover more than just a few things. And it's just a, people just should get the book. But this is an example of a thing, right? There's actually even thing, something called the cocktail party syndrome. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, it, it it gets worse as we get older. You have trouble picking picking out the voice that you want to hear against the background of noise. It's the it's something that uh, it's hard. It's hard for our brains. It's easier for them when we're younger, and it just gets it gets worse and worse. So you'll often you you know uh, I would ask somebody, oh you know fifties or older, and say, how's your hearing? They say, oh it's pretty good. You know, except in restaurants, and uh, it's where we all have trouble. And that trouble is compounded by the fact that. Um, restaurant owners want to drive older people away. So they, they tend to turn up the, the sound as the night goes on to 
you know, to make us eat faster and, and get out and uh, clear the seat for somebody who will come in and, and, and drink more and um, not just be a warm body in the restaurant. Now, one of the points you make early on is that, you know, if I started to have worsening problems with my eyes, I, I would just run back to the ophthalmologist or whoever right away and get them retested, get the prescription changed on my glasses. And really, the minute you can't see very well, most of us, if we have the means, um, we'll do something about this right away. Somehow or other, we're more cavalier about changes in our ability to hear. And, and is it... Is it denial or is it that somehow or other we just think it's not as big a problem? You know, it's, I think it's a lot of things. It, it creeps up on people. So, you don't. it's not something usually that happens right away. But th there's also this stigma. It's, it's, you know, it's old people can't hear. Uh, so, you know, it, it, people who don't need glasses will sometimes get them just because they like the way glasses look. But nobody does that with hearing aids. Uh, I was really struck, Charlie Rose, back when he was on TV, did an hour-long show about hearing and hearing loss. And he, there was all these experts sitting around a table, including a guy who had won a Nobel Prize in physics. And at no point in this hour, even though they were talking about hearing aids and hearing loss and cochlear implants and all this, Rose never mentioned that he was wearing two hearing aids. And the, the physicists didn't either. And you could see the physicists' hearing aids. But it was that, you know, they were ashamed. They didn't want to talk about it. And... Uh, so as a one, that's one reason that the average delay between when somebody notices a hearing problem and when they go to a medical professional to, to do something about it, the average is 10 years. Uh, I have an older friend who finally got hearing aids and he, he apologized to his audiologist. He says, you know, I, I, I waited four years. I should have come in four years ago. And he says, you're not late. You're early. Everybody else waits longer. <laughs> Yeah, and I think there is there is shame, and there's there's some weird stereotyping or or linkages. I mean, you know, glasses for a long time had this thing where you were supposedly you looked smarter if you wore glasses, but with hearing aids, with there's something like you you don't have as much of a clue as you used to, right? You're getting more clueless because you can't hear. Right, it's true, and just the, the fact that we talk about people being dumb, the deaf and dumb. Mm -hmm. Well, the reason that people who can't hear have difficulty speaking is, they, is that they can't hear, but the, that they that people lit on the adjective dumb to describe those people. It was assumed that they were unintelligent. And I, I that is part of the, you know, a part, a part of this stigma too. Uh, but it, it's just this, it's decrepitude. We don't want to be, you know, look like we're uh, going off the edge. Now, the, the good thing is that if you walk down the street today, young people, every half the young people you see have something sticking out of their ear. They have AirPods on or they have headphones on. They're listening to something. And so the simple fact that you have uh, uh, you know, visible electronics in your ears doesn't single you out as a, you know, pathetic old person necessarily anymore. So I think that's, that's a reason to be optimistic about the future of people addressing um, their hearing needs, even though at the same time, the devices that people are wearing are in, in many ways contributing to their hearing problems. Right. So, I mean, I'm in a profession where I wear headphones for an hour a day anyway. I used to wear them for three hours a day. Uh, that's a problem. And yeah, the the in-ear uh, earbuds or in-ear in headphones that I use, they look a lot like hearing aids. And we once again, we take this stuff for granted. I remember walking out of a concert with my son. We'd been to see the Dropkick Murphys, who are famously a loud band among loud bands. Other bands won't play at multi-stage festivals <laughs> like Coachella if 
um, if the Dropkick Murphys are on one of the stages. And we'd seen them in a small club called the Webster. And we walked out and I turned to my son and I said, please tell me there's a car alarm going off near us right now. And that's just not something that's happened to my ears. But I think the, the, the lie we tell ourselves or the misapprehension we have is that it'll just sort of heal because my ears don't sound like that all the time, right? I mean, so I think I got better, but I guess that's really not exactly true. Yeah, the, the past dozen years, there's been this really unsettling discovery that ears don't necessarily recover from that, even though they seem to. And it always used to be that, you know, if you had taken, if you'd had a hearing test, you know, the week before you went to that concert, and then you had another one a week after, the, the, the results might be identical. And yet there's a, a, a strong feeling now that there's actually been permanent damage done that just doesn't show up in a standard hearing test. When you take a standard hearing test, uh, they put you in a soundproof room, they put uh, headphones or earpieces in your ears, and they play uh, they play single tones and, mm -hmm. you know, you say when you, whether you can hear them or not, well, you have to, you have to lose a lot of your hearing before you stop being able to do that. What, but what happens is you lose your uh, ability to hear in uh, against the background of noise, to make sense of language, uh, you know, to understand what other people are saying. Uh, this is you've seen a lot in military veterans that come back from Iraq and Afghanistan and they, they have trouble talking on the telephone because they've, they've been exposed to this extraordinary sound environment and has uh, done damage, uh, all kinds of damage to their hearing. So um, I, I want to talk about uh, another thing that uh, you and I have in common, uh, David Owen. And to do that, we're going to play a clip, actually, that's from the podcast that we're going to be talking about in the second segment today, The World According to Sound. And it's going to bother both David Owen and me that these guys mispronounce the word tinnitus all, all the <laughs> way through. Uh, but uh, let's just hear a little bit of this, cat. So the British uh, Tinnitus Association created, I guess we don't have the narration anyway, but they do, they say tinnitus all the way through. Anyway, the British Tinnitus Association, they created simulations of what people with tinnitus experience because David, uh, I have it, you have it, but the problem is nobody else, with rare exceptions, nobody else can hear your tinnitus or my tinnitus. That's right. And it's, uh, I noticed mine first, I guess it was, it was like, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago. And it is just this constant high-pitched sound. It reminds me of the cicadas I heard in the summer uh, in Kansas City, incredibly hot summers, this droning of insects. People pronounce that word two different ways, too. Some people say cicada. Um, <laughs> with tinnitus, it's usually doctors say tinnitus in the same way they say angina, and then, you know, lay people say tinnitus and angina. But, you know, I think both are acceptable. But if you want to sound like a doctor, you say tinnitus. So, um, and, and we know certain things about tinnitus, but there's sort of ways in which it is a little bit of a mystery. And one possibility is that it's the audio equivalent of a phantom limb experience, right? Yeah, exactly. It's the, what will often happen is that somebody, you lose hearing, you damage your hearing in some frequency range, your brain isn't getting signals that it's used to getting. And so it, it kind of fills in the gap. Uh, it makes up something that 
to take its place. And that's kind of what people now think about phantom limb pain. Somebody has a limb amputated, yet they can still feel it. And it's because the their brain is no longer receiving reports from this outlying se- uh, sector. And uh, the... Uh, um, so, it, you know, it makes up something. It puts it in place. And, you know, people will say, they'll talk to Bo, talk to somebody at Bose and say, why don't you uh, make noise-canceling headphones for my tinnitus? Uh, and the reason you can't is that tinnitus isn't a sound. It's just it's like this weird electrical activity in your brain. Uh, sound is a physical force. Noise-canceling headphones uh, cancel it basically by punching back. They push back. Uh, you know, um, out of phase with the sound that's coming in and, and doing that makes it go away. But you can't do that with, you know, just with with um, the, the static and the circuitry inside your head. Right. It's amazing how many hearing problems are brain problems. I don't know if we made that clear at the beginning, but the problem I was describing at the beginning where I don't hear in crowded situations or sort of multi-noise situations as well is essentially a brain problem. The brain just isn't as good as it used to be as saying, oh, Colin wants to listen to what Steve Lashover is saying right now. He doesn't want to listen to all this other crap. So I'll turn Lashover up and turn all the other crap down. Right. And the other side is, is true, too, how, how your brain, our brains help us here. It's not just, you know, the, you know, the sound waves coming into our ears. Vision has a huge part uh, to play with it. And I think this is one reason people talk about they'll be doing right now. They're in quarantine. They're doing Zoom meetings with business associates and they find them exhausting in a way that they didn't find uh, regular meetings to be exhausting. And the reason is that they're not even though they're hearing everything, they don't have the sort of supplemental information that you get when you're in person, the little gestures and body language and, and all the facial, uh, you know, the lip reading, uh, uh, the, all the, the other clues that feed into hearing comprehension. And so they have to work harder to stay on top of what people are saying. And it, it, it's tiring. And for this is exactly what happens with people who lose hearing. Now, in order to take part in conversations with um uh, with other people, they have to expend more effort than they did when they could just hear it. Now they're relying more on their eyes, they're relying more on context, they're relying more on other clues, and it's, it uh, takes it out of them. So we need to talk about hearing aids. Um, yeah, a lot of people need to talk about hearing aids. In fact, there's so much really fascinating information in this book. And I was re- I, we have somebody uh, that we know very well who has lost uh, the hearing in, in one ear, hasn't had it for a long time. And I was looking up from the book last night saying, does she know that there are hearing aids that will send a signal from the ear that hears, uh, you know, into the ear that doesn't hear? And like, will you even correct for, for that? I mean, they could do incredible things. But the industry itself is a little bit of a ripoff. I mean, not a ripoff, but the, these is thousands and thousands of dollars get charged for parts that are worth, you know, maybe what, a hundred bucks, or at least that's the way it has been for most of time. Maybe you can tell us more about that. Yeah, sure. Oh, that, and incident, that single-sided hearing aid, it sends sound from the ear that can't hear can't to hear. the one that's that can right. hear. To the one that can't hear. Uh, so it goes the other way. Yeah. So you get, you hear the sound, but what one thing you don't get when you get that, you can't locate where a sound is coming from because you need two ears to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something that's something we totally take for granted. Right. You take for granted that if somebody says something to you, you know where that sound is coming from. If you have one functioning ear, you have no idea. It just it could be coming from anywhere. Uh, the hearing aid industry, there's some people who've tried to reform it and they were, they created, uh, you know, basically software that would have made it possible for 
hearing aid users to adjust their own hearing aids. Just do what an audiologist does. They could do it, use their phone to adjust their hearing aids. And the hearing aid manufacturers were not interested. Uh, they said, you know, this would, our customers wouldn't like this. And at some point, these people realized that by customers, they didn't mean people who have hearing problems. They meant people, audiologists, the people who fit people for hearing aids. So, the, you know, they're extraordinarily expensive. They tend not to be covered by insurance or only partially covered by insurance. Uh, they take much more than glasses. They take, they take, you really have to concentrate on getting used to them. You have to, you have to commit to them and people tend not to. So they make this extraordinary uh, expenditure, $3,000 a year uh, is not uncommon. Uh, they try them for a little while, then they put them away and they never wear them again. I think that's typical too. So one of the things that people want and one of the reasons that people uh, put them away and never use them again is that they can't adjust them very well. And what you really want is, as one of your your characters, uh, characters is the wrong word, one of the people in your book describes is, you know, if you're going to take a walk to the train station and listen to a podcast on the way, you want to be hearing certain things and not hearing certain things in that situation. But maybe when you're, when you're on the train, you mainly only want to be able to listen to the podcast. And as you go through your day, your relationship with the sound world may change. So it would be great if you could adjust them and for a long time i gather you couldn't right and they're saying you can you can adjust them to some extent now uh, typically and some automatically you know you can have uh hearing aids that they know they because they're connected to your phone they know when you've gone into starbucks and so they switch to their restaurant mode or something like that but you don't have the kind of control over them that you can't really make a lot of adjustments in them um the uh you know the ideal would be to have devices that you could control by yourself i have some headphones that are made by uh made by bose called hearphones they, they don't call them hearing aids they can't call them hearing aids but it's basically legally but it's it's really what they are they have the same microprocessor that's in hearing aids uh but they have better fidelity because they have bigger speakers uh, bigger microphones directional they have directional microphones they have a bigger battery uh, and uh, they they run a more robust version of Bluetooth, uh, and they're great. They 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 do sound canceling not only outside your head but also inside your ear canals because when you plug up your ears with hearing aids or with uh, with ear earbuds or anything like that, you create a little echo chamber inside your head, and sound gets in there and bounces around. And so they, there's noise canceling inside your ear too that that gets rid of that. Um, uh, what's called occlusion, this this sort of head in a barrel effect that you often that you get whenever you like if you stick your fingers in your ears. It's what your voice sounds like. It sounds it sounds weird. Um, we're sort of speed dating through parts of this book, and really, you are going to uh, have to get volume control hearing in a deafening world by David Owen and read about stuff you never realized about bats. The thing about bats is incredible. We're not going to do it right now, though. Buy the book. Uh, thing about owls too, stuff like that. But I, and David, I don't know if you know this, but you, a couple of years ago, um, we created this thing called Radio for the Deaf, and we worked with one of the people in your book, Jeff Braven, uh, from American School for the Deaf. We what had happened was I'd done a show where I'd interviewed him through ASL with the trans, same, same interpreter you worked with, um, uh, I'm sure, in talking to Jeff. And I just had this incredibly emotional experience where I suddenly realized that there was almost kind of two tribes, you know, that there was these two tribes that live alongside with one another, but don't really often succeed in communicating all that well and it is the hearing culture and the deaf culture um and so we we actually 
for a while were doing radio shows that were available uh, on on Facebook uh, video uh, where we had two interpreters, one uh, who specifically interpreted me and the other person who interpreted uh, everything that the guests uh, were saying. And we eventually stopped it because we ran out of funding and stuff. But anyway, it's a long story. But I mean, it, this is something that you really looked into, too, that th there's and even within the other tribe, there's two different cultures that have different ideas about whether you should be using American Sign Language, which is a language, or whether you should try, be trying to kind of adapt into a less obvious way of understanding your world. Maybe you could just say a little bit more about what you discovered on uh, on your journey through that world. Yeah, I was going to say there, there there's there's a cultural divide not only between hearing and non-hearing, but between the so the deaf and the so-called capital D deaf, who think of non-hearing as a, as a cultural identification. Uh, and it's been that relationship has been made complicated by the fact that there have been these extraordinary technological advances in uh, hearing uh, improvement devices, specific, especially cochlear implants. Uh, and the whole history is fascinating. The the efforts that were made by Alexander, Alexander Graham Bell, among others, to get rid of American Sign Language, to prevent the deaf from communicating, uh, because uh, Bell thought that uh, deafness was it was congenital, that these people, if you allowed them to communicate with each other, they would, and only with each other, they would breed together and create a whole deaf subspecies of the, of the human race. And uh, just this amazing stuff. When you go back and you read, you can't believe that that it was that people were talking about this. Um, it's it's all incredibly complicated, and the the changes that have taken place in education uh, to the point now, uh, is, as uh, as Jeff Braven was saying, you know, they now their typical student has some other difficulty in addition to to being hard of hearing. So they have lots of kids with autism. They have all these very complicated kids who have basically, the public schools have said, we can't handle them. We'll send them to you. You fix everything. And then we'll take them back when you're finished. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's, it's amazing. And one of the most amazing things that I read, there's this terrific book about, well, I hadn't realized, my wife and I go to Martha's Vineyard every summer, maybe not this summer, but <laughs> otherwise, in the town of Chilmark, where we go, for centuries, there was this extraordinary uh, uh, there, there was a high level of congenital deafness, like 4% of the population. And as a consequence, everybody spoke sign language. There were no activities specifically for the deaf. There were no activities from which the deaf were excluded. And when people reminisced about this period with the person who wrote a book, uh, a PhD thesis in a book about it, they didn't always remember who had, could hear and who couldn't. And there was a woman who talked about having an argument with somebody, there was a shouting fight, and then she stopped and said, come to think of it, we were probably uh, shouting at each other in sign language. Mm -hmm. And it was so, they, it was just, an, as a matter of course, you grew up bilingual in English and sign language. And uh, they, um, and even hearing people when there were when there were no deaf people around would often communicate. If you were telling a dirty joke, you might use sign language. <laughs> uh, if fishermen between boats would use sign language because the voice wouldn't carry far enough. And so it's just a it, it was an interesting thing where you have a, a disability, but it was not treated as a handicap. And it it made me realize that you know handicaps are cultural constructs as much as they are. Uh, physical disabilities, we decide that this is a problem and we make it a problem when in fact they're, you know, I wish now, now, <laughs> now that my hearing is getting a little shaky and, I'll, and that I do things 
my you know my golf buddies increasingly can't hear very well i wish that instead of studying french stupidly uh for so many years and getting nowhere i wish i'd just been growing up uh in you know bilingual in english and american sign language it would be much more useful than my french has ever been Right. Although the, ideally we all would have done that when we were uh, when our language uptake was maximized. So I'd know it, too. You, if you and I went out to dinner at Fatty Crab, if that still even exists, uh, we could switch over uh, into right. a- a- ASL and we would actually be able to hear each other. Um, yeah. It's, it's a, and you watch people, t- you know, you watch people communicating. Inside. It's great. And interesting, you know, the, the interpreter that when you talk to Jeff Braven, his interpreter was typical of sign language interpreters. She was a hearing child of deaf parents mm-hmm. in a coda, a, ch- a, child, a child of deaf adults. And so she had grown up bilingual. She could speak, but because her parents communicated in sign language, she learned it you know, from infancy. And the it, people, I think it's 90 or 95% of deaf children are born to hearing parents. And that you, it's, I think it's hard for those of us who can hear to believe this, but that's actually a disadvantage uh, almost always, unless those parents can sign because what it means is that those children, when they're young, when their brains are the most receptive to language, they're not getting any inputs. Their parents aren't signing to them. They can't hear. It's a, if you are a deaf child, it's a great advantage to be born to deaf parents who can sign because it means you begin to communicate exactly when uh, your brain is ready to begin communicating. And then, you know, then you can pick up English later, but you can begin. Uh, your brain ad- uh, uh, acquires a language at the moment when it's supposed to. All right, we have to stop there, and there's so much more. We really have only scratched the surface of volume control. Hearing in a Deafening World by David Owen. David, once again, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks, Colin. Let's take a break, and you'll get to meet those guys who do that uh, this fascinating show all about sound. I've come to talk with you again Because a vision softly creeping Left its seeds while I was sleeping And the vision that was planted in my brain still So when you listen to the amazing podcast, The World According to Sound, you learn a lot of things. You learn that, well, it turns out that giraffes hate to see that evening sun go down, or at least they emit kind of a mournful hum uh, when they do. Uh, and that somebody made a pipe organ out of uh, squeaky cat toys. Uh, and that there's a man in Romania who can play music on a leaf. And cat, here's what that one sounds like. So yeah, that's a guy playing a leaf. Uh, joining us now is Chris Hoff, a public radio sound engineer for KALW in San Francisco, co-creator with Sam Harnett of the podcast, The World According to Sound. And as you can probably guess, also with us is Sam Harnett, uh, a reporter for KQED in San Francisco. Uh, so uh, first of all, gentlemen, welcome to our show. Thanks. Thanks. It was great to hear that uh, leaf blower classic. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, it's one of your top 10 hits. Um, So, Ian, one of you, uh, just give us a sense of the genesis of this. We should say that this 
this kind of sounds like a cross between Bird Note, which is a show that we have uh, here on our station, uh, and Radio Lab, except that it's way shorter than Radio Lab, and there's sort of yeah. no, there's no Jad and Robert kind of sum it all up for you and est- extract some lesson. You just kind of are letting us be with these sounds. But maybe one of you explain <laughs> what, what the whole concept yeah, was. S- Sam and Chris don't lo- like to talk that much. That's pretty much the sum up of it. <laughs> um, yeah, really. I mean, it really kind of started as, I mean, we've both been in public radio for over a decade. And uh, Chris as an engineer, me as a reporter, we made a ton of public radio stories. And we wanted to try to do something really, really different. And basically, the genesis was that we work in radio, but there's not that much sound on the radio. I mean, if you listen to a lot of public radio stories, especially on, you know, news pieces on NPR, sound only gets a couple seconds. And it's always used very functionally to, you know, set the scene or prove a point or move the plot along or, you know, indicate something about a character. So we wanted to try to make a show that actually focused on sound. And our original premise was to not talk at all, but (laughs) we realized you need to give people a little something. I, f- I found even in the brief amount of time that I was listening to these podcasts, and we should say that if you don't like long podcasts, then you're <laughs> going to be in heaven because four minutes is like a super long episode. Um, but I, I started just like being incredibly aware of, I mean, I've been listening to them all day, but sometimes I'm listening to them and I'm suddenly aware that there's a, an interfering sound in the background. And then you start to listen to the fact that, yeah, I was actually thawing, uh, uh, you know, veggie burger in the microwave and the <laughs> microwave is singing to me in various ways. And I'm dropping it into the pan now afterwards after it's thawed. So it's sizzling in the pan. Mm-hmm. Is, is that what the world sounds like to you guys all the time? Are you kind of hyper aware now? It's actually funny because yesterday I, we we're I was making our latest episode, which is about um, slowing down the the bird songs, basically, yeah. like so you can hear all of them like very clearly. And I was listening back to it, you know, in my apartment, and like I was I got into this like really cool meditative space for a while. I actually got lost in our own episode, even though I know it, you know, backwards and forwards. But like there is. Um, I think actually there is often a way that I can like actually totally block out stuff. Like I can sort of switch in my brain this thing where I can choose to listen to a thing or almost choose not to. Like otherwise I think you just go crazy. Like if you're talking about, you know, like you can hear all the, all the annoying stuff, like the, you know, the microwave humming and all that. Like if you can only focus on that, I feel like you kind of go crazy after a while. You know what I mean? I mean, I would say, I would say an early bonding moment for Chris and I, (laughs) there was a leaf blower somewhere. And then we just looked at each other and we're like, what, like, why does that thing exist? Like, what, like, how can that be, like, how can yeah, we right. live with that noise? And we both realized that we, you know, I don't know if I'd go as far as saying misophonia, but sounds can drive us crazy because I think we are kind of, we just, we have trouble blocking it out. So we had a, <laughs> we bonded over, over sounds that drove us nuts. Well, um, on the other hand. I do think you, I mean, I, a point that I thought you kind of touched on that's really interesting is that when you do listen to sound, like it, it focuses you in a way that allows your mind to kind of have a lot of associative thoughts, and especially in our culture where we're being so bombarded, especially visually. I mean, you think about advertisements and you're just constantly being shown things um, to have sound as a way to sort of escape and it gives your mind a little bit of freedom. Well, yeah, I think, you know, having my, my consciousness raised by you guys, look, my microwave isn't going to go on silent mode. So right. um, so better to listen to it and kind of appreciate 
the fact that it's all kind of an engineered sound. And that brings up, I think it might be your second most recent show, uh, which had more talking on it than any episode I've ever heard, with uh-huh. this guy who describes himself, by the way, as a blind guy. That was his term. Uh, but his Oh, he actually is. This is yeah. Hobie Wedler. Hobie yeah. actually is. He was congenitally blind. Yeah. Yeah. So, so explain what he does for a living. This is amazing. I mean, he basically is hired by outside companies to not only sound design, but mainly sort of sound design products. So like anything that you buy, like even, you know, down to like, maybe that we'll hear a bit, but like a bottle of water. When you open that bottle of water, the lid makes a sound, right? Like there's two things like both like the the little little plastic parts are called tines like they're they break when you open that mm-hmm. bottle of water so that's the sound and then of course like when you actually sort of unscrew the cap or pop the cap that's the sound so like he consults with them to say like here's how you should basically do it yeah it turns out mealy vacuum cleaners sound <laughs> i mean vacuum cleaners can i guess sound any number of ways and mealy vacuum cleaners Sound are the more, best they sound, they sound more beautiful <laughs> all right we're going to play a clip uh, from your show i'm going to have you talk right. about it afterwards uh the clip is uh is called the end of the world song play it uh cat So this is potentially less funny today than, right. than it might I was have just going to say that. I mean, so this, <laughs> yeah. is a, so this is from a videotape that uh, CNN had, which if, you know, if the nukes got launched, they were going to pop this in and transmit it, <laughs> you know, for, for the content for the end of the world. And uh, so there's a tape, and I actually can't remember what the visual is. But Chris and I just thought, it's like, imagine the exercise of picking the song for the end of the world. Like, what do you pick and why? And, and that song, you know, I guess it's kind of mournful. Maybe that would be your association anyway. But uh, but the fact that that someone deliberately chose that song for the end of the world, kind of, I don't know. To us, this was just like it, it brought along that thought experiment of, well, what would you pick and why? So uh, I, I'm also sort of wondering where where you get every. I mean, you've had a lot of episodes. It's, I guess it's a little <laughs> yeah. bit easier to have a lot of episodes <laughs> if you do really short episodes. But I mean, does somebody call you up and say, "Hey, you know, giraffes make noises," you know, right around sundown? I mean, how? how do I mean, we do get that a little now. It's funny on on Twitter. Someone just said, uh, um, "My my sourdough oh, right. starters." Uh, you can if you you can hear them if you put your ear up to it. So I'm going to make a recording, and he sent it to us, and it was really fascinating to to hear sourdough starters eating. So we do get some people, you know, do write in, but I would say really the concept is just, I, I mean, again, the, the whole big concept was trying to make radio that focuses on sound, trying to find sounds that uh, stimulate people to have their own thoughts and own ideas and own impressions. You know, to get away from the public radio format of like telling you things constantly, yeah. and giving you information and stories. And then I said that the, maybe the third premise was to to make sounds that sort of made you rethink the world or rethink sound or pay more attention to sound. Um, 
Yeah. You, you definitely do that. So this it's weird how this show is full of sort of callbacks to older shows that we've done. Uh, a lot of mm. stuff that I talked to David about. I mean, we've done a, a lot of shows that involve deafness. And, uh, we, but we mm-hmm. also did, you will be pleased to know, if Betsy Kaplan didn't already tell you, we did a whole show with people who hear voices. Uh, they were mm. guests on the show. Oh, well. These are people who, who actually do hear voices, and they talked about what, what that's like and, and what it's like to hear voices. Uh, so uh, this is a, a clip of from your show uh, on auditory hallucinations. This, I believe, is a simulation uh, mm-hmm. of voices that people sometimes hear in their heads. So let's uh, hear that one, Cap. So stupid. Look at you. No, you can't. Stupid. Stupid. Going in the car. Jump. Jump now. Jump in front of the car. Go on. Go on. Do it. Do it. And no, no, don't. So um, this particular clip, I guess, has attracted uh, quite a bit uh, of interest. There's a lot of people who I don't know if we know why, but like 3.5 million people have listened to it. Yeah, I mean, well, it's one of those things where you, you know, like, obviously you can't, it's impossible to hear this, right? Like, I mean, no one can actually get in somebody's head. So the whole idea of like listening to something that's actually unlistenable, I think is like a really interesting idea. Um, and I, and I'll also, I'm just sure, you know, it's probably afflicts. Like, I don't know how many people this actually afflicts, but it's probably not the most unusual thing to, to hear things like this. So, I mean, yeah, it's just like a lot of people probably sort of feel sympathy when they can sort of try to have a, you know, an idea of what somebody's going through when they're hearing voices like this. All right, so we're going to leave it there, uh, although we are going to go out, of course, with one more piece of sound. Once again, the podcast is called The World World According to Sound. It will not eat up a lot of your time unless you do what I did, <laughs> which is listen to like 30 of them in a row, in which case then it starts to add up a little bit. But it's just really terrific. It's a lot of fun, and you really do start hearing the world and noticing the world in a different way, at least temporarily. Chris Hoff and Sam Harnett uh, are the two creators of it. Thanks for being here. I think we're going to go out with I, this unfortunately is not the pipe organ made of the cat squeaky toys which is the one that I like the much the most I think this is a different pipe organ All right, we're back. It's time for me to say some thank yous. Uh, One of them is to senior producer Betsy Kaplan, who put this show together today, found all these terrific guests and thought the whole thing through. Uh, Kat Pastor is here, uh, is there. (laughs) I'm not here. She's there. Um, She's in the studios, uh, which makes it possible for us to work remotely. She's the person who's running the board, and you hear me talking to her when we're playing the clips and all that kind of stuff. So uh, she's our technical producer, and we are very grateful uh, to her. And we're grateful these days to all the people who kind of in the background made some of the technological stuff possible that allows me to be in my house and Betsy Kaplan to be in her house and all that kind of stuff. So thanks to all of you. Uh, Tomorrow we have a show, uh, uh, I think maybe um, 
2017 or so, uh, we did a show called Which Dystopia Is This? Uh, and it was we sort of talked to speculative writers about and to people who read a lot of speculative fiction uh, and watch a lot of, you know, sort of apocalyptic movies and stuff. Which dystopia are we living in right now? That obviously has changed. <laughs> so we're going to do a new version of that show with different guests and talk about whether anybody got this particular dystopia right. But more happily right now, yeah, actually it's gotten very quiet. The, the tectonic uh, sounds that, uh, that humans make on the earth uh, have grown lower and lower. People are making less and less noise, except on the telephone. Telephone calls are going way, way up. I'll give you some stats in just a second. I personally hate to talk on the telephone. But I live with someone who says, I have to go downstairs and make my phone calls in pretty much the tones that Yo-Yo Ma probably uses when he says he has to go practice cello. Uh, so some people are virtuosos at this and some people are not. Heather Radke, I believe, is going to turn out to be one of the virtuosos, uh, a writer uh, and critic. Uh, her work has appeared uh, in The Believer, The Paris Review, Radio Lab, the aforementioned uh, Radio Lab. Her book, Butts, will be published in 2021. Uh, she wrote uh, a piece in The American Scholar about this. And fittingly, whereas most of our guests today have joined us on Zoom, fittingly, Heather has uh, cho chosen to appear by phone. So welcome to the show, Heather. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. So this is... Um, the, the piece that you wrote is, on the one hand, an ode to the telephone, and but also about how special relationships, or in your case, one particular special relationship, was nurtured and shaped by the ability to talk on the phone. Yeah, that's right. My oldest and best friend, Ashley, she and I have been talking on the phone for as long as I can remember, and we still talk on the phone today. I just talked to her not an hour ago, so... <laughs> You called her up to tell her you were going to be talking about talking on the telephone, on the phone, on a radio station. <laughs> yeah, well, the... and we talk about what we always talk about, which is, you know, what we had for breakfast and how we're doing and just the sort of daily realities of our lives, which I think is why part of the reason why the telephone has become is sort of having this um, COVID-19 renaissance is that um, these kinds of this way of connecting via sound over space about things both big and small has become really, really appealing in these weird, weird weeks. Right. So just to give you people a sense, Verizon says it's now handling an average of 800 million wireless calls a day during the week, which is more than double the number made on Mother's Day, historically one of the busiest call days of the wow. year. Uh, so uh, that's just one of many statistics indicating that voice calls are way up. In your piece, you kind of describe yourself as sort of the oldest possible millennial, uh, often <laughs> yeah, dealing with, right. the, with the youngest possible millennials. And even though you're at least nominally part of a demographic, cohort, there's in fact a different set of uh, attitudes. We all know this, that there are people of a certain age right now have almost an aversion to, it like would be weird to call somebody on the phone when you could text them or g-chat them or something. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I'm as guilty as anyone of that. I mean, I think um, over these past five or six years, I've gotten really used to communicating mostly via text with a lot of my friends. But I have a handful of people that I still talk to at least once a week on the phone. And um, I think it offers me something different. You know, I, I, in the piece, I say that I feel like the phone is kind of an improvisational medium. And I think we can kind of surprise ourselves on the phone. And 
one thing about the text message is that it's like any kind of writing you are editing as you're doing it and you can, you know, you're a little bit more self-conscious, which is, I think, the same thing about a Zoom call is you're almost literally self-conscious. You see yourself on the screen. Um, but with a phone call, there's a, I, I think it's a little bit more poetic and soulful and intimate and a little bit messier. And I think in these days when we feel messy, the kind of... Um, the messiness of the medium is maybe appealing more. Well, Heather, I mean, not for nothing, and way before the invention of the phone call, the Catholic Church realized that if you wanted people to really unburden themselves, you know, you'd put them in kind of a dark place where they couldn't see the person that they were talking to, uh, and, and then they would apparently feel much more comfortable uh, saying things that they weren't necessarily comfortable saying to other people. I mean, in a way, the telephone just kind of popularizes and secularizes that idea. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's the same thing with the psychoanalyst couch, right? It's like... Um, We've known for a long time that when we're not looking right into somebody's face, we're able to say things that maybe we can't quite say when we are. Um, there was actually sort of a fear in the early days of the development uh, of the phone that somehow or other women were going to, uh, I don't know, they were going to share their secrets with strangers and they were going to break out of their domestic roles. Maybe you could say a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I found this in this in a book by a, a historian named Carolyn Marvin. And um, in the early days of, like, once phones started to actually be in people's homes, there was a real fear that, especially for bourgeois women who had really um, particular roles that they needed to fill or they were supposed to fill in, in the home, that they had this sort of new way out that they could. I mean, particularly there was a fear about women having affairs over the telephone, um, but that there was this kind of, they could basically like escape the entrapment of the of the domestic space and sort of be a little bit wild and and get out of the home. And one quote that I found that I just really loved and I felt like really spoke to my own experience. But what I love about the phone is there was a British writer that said, uh, I think it was in the probably the early 20th century, he said, we shall soon be nothing but transparent heaps of jelly to each other. And I think that's sort of what the phone offers is the, is the opportunity to be transparent heaps of jelly. And, you know, there's times when you want that and there's times that you don't. And I think this is more and more a time that we do want that kind of messy, intimate um, closeness. Although it could also be argued the opposite, that the phone can be armor in a way. I'm thinking particularly of the sort of breaking up with somebody thing. You know, in other words, there's a, there's a whole bunch of people who feel like it's cheating if you break up with somebody on the phone or certainly by an email or something like that, that there's this sort of a red badge of courage you have to get by going face to face into that conversation and that the phone's a little bit too protective. Comment on that. Well, I think that, I mean, it's, that's an interesting, uh, it's interesting to hear you say that because I feel like, these days, if you break up with someone on the phone, it's just, you know, you've, you've really done the moral thing instead of breaking <laughs> with, up with them over text. Yeah. <laughs> but I suppose it's all a matter of degree, right? I mean, of course, I think we're all feeling the way that we crave actual in-person interaction. But I think if, you're, if your choices are between text and the phone, I think the phone is, is more intimate. And I also think, you know, I mean, I suppose there's something to be said for like, what we have to literally face up to, you know, like I, if I was breaking up with someone, I would want to look them in the eye. Whereas if I'm like one of my like sort of fond memories of talking on the phone was being in high school with like an old 
kind of uh, portable phone where you could like feel it getting hot in your hand. And we, you know, I would talk to my friends and we'd just tell each other all of our secrets and all the people we had crushes on and all the, you know, talk for hours about all the music we were listening to. That's the kind of thing that happens on the phone. Whereas I think, you know, uh, firing someone, breaking up with somebody, even I would say maybe telling somebody that you love them. It's like there's something to be said for really doing that in person. Right. Well, there's a whole George Clooney movie about who fires who in person. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. exactly. So this is all really fascinating stuff. And we are thrilled to have you on. Uh, we have not entirely covered everything that's in this essay. So you might want to track down uh, the piece in American Scholar uh, that Heather Radke wrote. We're going to have her back when the movie Butts comes out. I don't even know what Butts is about, but producer Betsy Kaplan <laughs> does. And she says that you're going to have to come back. Uh, so uh, I think well, no, what is it about? We've got like 30 seconds. So what, which well, kind of butt is it book, about? And it's, it's, a, um, it's a nonfiction book about the cultural history of the female butt. So I look at the, um, the history starting with Sarah Bartman in the early 19th century and through today and look at sort of what the butt means and um, what, how, right. we, how that meaning has changed over time. All right. Uh, also appearing on that episode will be Sir Mix-a-Lot. Thanks for joining, <laughs> joining us today, and thanks for listening, if you're out there listening, uh, to a show about sound. Noise in the air, no